Good afternoon. <clears throat> In many ways, Israel is the most remarkable event of the past 2,000 years of Jewish history, the rebirth of Israel. But I think, like all realities, it is a reality. It's a living state. It's not just a dream. We had a dream for many for centuries. It has all the complexity of a real world and of a real life situation. <clears throat> it's that balance I'd like to strike with you in reflecting on certain themes of understanding of what we have in terms of the challenge of Israel and our relationship to it. Let me start at the beginning with something I spoke about last night, and many of you may not have been here, so I'll try to just can make that connection. The central impact of Judaism and the Jewish people on world history, perhaps, has been our teaching of what I called last night the movement from creation to redemption. Our religion's teaching that the world as it is, is intended, first of all, it's a creation. It's not a meaningless, mechanical, random reality. It has a creator that we speak of as God. <clears throat> but most important, it has a direction. It is intended to be made perfect or to become perfect. And while the creation, the creator, sets this in motion, to achieve that final redemption will take a partnership, a collaboration between humans and God, or humans and the divine, and between humans and each other. That partnership idea, that idea that the world is not yet complete, in Jewish understanding means we don't settle for status quo, that each of us as a community has a chance to contribute. The covenant, which I spoke about, is not just with the Jewish people. We see ourselves as a role model, as a teacher, but not the only covenant. But we also have that opportunity, in fact, that responsibility as individuals live our lives, to live our lives on the side of life, to live our, size, our lives on the side of tikkun olam, perfecting the world. That's what I spoke about last night. <laughs> but I want to start with one observation from that theme, which directly goes to Israel. The great event of the biblical period, of course, is the exodus, the liberation of the Hebrew slaves from slavery to freedom, which our religion sees as a kind of a paradigm, a model for the whole world. Just as these slaves were taken from slavery to freedom, so will all of humanity someday. Just as these slaves were taken from a place of oppression, degradation, actually genocide, Pharaoh was killing the Jewish boys, children, someday the whole world will be taken to a place where they will get to a place where they have freedom, where they have dignity, where they have their rights assured. Now, part of that pattern, we should never forget, is it doesn't end where they leave Egypt. First of all, they go to Sinai. That's the covenant. That's the entering the partnership, again, which I spoke of last night. But the other side of the coin is they keep going, and they go to the land of Israel. What does it mean to go to Israel? From the beginning, from Abraham, the very first Jew, the sense of covenant partnership was directly linked to land. And I think the reason is obvious. What's the meaning of a homeland? God's first words to Abraham in the Torah is, of course, go forth from your land where you are now, from your father's home, from your family, to a land that I will show you. So from the beginning, the Jewish calling, the Jewish covenant, is built on the idea that Jews will find and come to their own land, which in later scripture is called the promised land, the holy land, and so on. Why is this there from the very beginning? Because what's the definition of a homeland? It's a place where I can be by right. I'm not here by invitation. I'm not here by sufferance, by tolerance. I have a right to be here as much as anybody else. No one can tell me you don't belong here or that you're a second class or you're whatever. So part of the notion of human dignity, an essential part of freedom, is the notion that I have a place where I live by right, where no one can kick me out, where no one can say, you don't deserve the same dignity as everybody else. And again, I would say very simply, so that's why it becomes critical 
for the Jewish people to find that land, to win that land, to establish their own homeland. And of course, once you get there, of course, the same, the same message. Today the Jews, tomorrow the world. This is meant to be a model for the world. Someday all human beings will have a homeland where they exist by right, where no one can say to them, you're second class or leave or we tolerated you, but you have to accept the fact that you have to walk two steps behind us, that you have to pay special taxes or whatever, the particular form of inferiority. You're here as an illegal immigrant and you have no right to exist. That's an essential part of human dignity for all people. No less important is that when you have your own homeland and you're there by right, this is the flip side of making a better world. This is the place where you and your people, because you're there by right, can flourish, can create that society that shows the way toward a better world, that can create a society that has a higher level of dignity for human beings, that can show people how you move from the present imperfect toward that future, which is the goal of all. That's the classic Jewish model. You want to make the whole world perfect? What do you do? The answer is you start with one country. That's pretty hard now that I think of it. So you start with one city within that country. And of course, that's why Jerusalem has become such a focus of Jewish dreams and Jewish hopes. And you know, it's pretty hard to make a whole city perfect too. So the Jewish Christians said, we'll start with one building. That's what the Holy Temple was about. It really wasn't about, in the end, about, about sacrifices or about it's just God's home. The point, the symbolism of the temple was, here is one place, which is a kind of an ideal model of what the perfect world of the future will look like. What do I mean? Well, for example, under the ideal, this was the house of God. It was the house of life because our dream is a world which is full of life and which is dominated by life. So in this house of life, for example, no one could come in who was dead. If you had exposure to the dead, you were considered impure. You had to go through a rebirth ritual in order to enter. But the symbolism is not just ritual. The symbolism, for example, again, life means the fullness of dignity of life. So for example, again, the priests who served in this temple were perfect physical specimens. Because in the Jewish dream, in the Messianic world, we're going to cure all disease. There'll be no handicaps, no muscular dystrophy, no, you name it, multiple sclerosis. But it's going to be cured. That's our dream. So the temple was a place where you had a perfect physical specimen full of life. And it wasn't just physical perfection. How about moral perfection? I quote from Psalm 24. Apparently, this was a kind of a password into the temple. When they would come up onto the holy mountain, they would say, Somebody was on guard there, said, Mi aleh bahar Hashem, would it pose a question to the one who wanted to enter? Mi aleh bahar Hashem, mi akumim kum kacho, who is going to, who has the right to enter on God's holy mountain, the temple? Mi akumim, who has the right to stand on kum kacho in his holy place? And the would-be admittant would have to answer, Nikicha payim uvar I come with clean hands and a pure heart. To enter the temple means I'm making a statement. I understand what human ethics, human dignity is about. And I come here. I'm not a crook. I'm not an oppressor. I'm not a scoundrel. My hands are clean. My heart is pure. I shall learn it. I've never taken a false oath. I've never sold a subprime mortgage. Whatever you had to say. No, whatever. I mean, I was so inspired the first time I realized that this is what the Psalm is saying should be the admittance to the synagogue or to the temple. I got excited. I went down to the board meeting. I said, friends, did you realize what the, what the Torah says, what the, what the Tehillim says? That before they come into the temple, they would ask them, who wants to enter here? And the person would have to say, I have clean hands and I've never cheated. And, and so I said, how about we pass this as a requirement for our membership? <clears throat> well, of course, they wanted to fire me. I said, Rabbi, we'll be out of business in one week. <laughs> The president got very insulted. He said, how dare you? <clears throat> you know, it's like the rabbi gave a sermon on that shalt not steal. And the next week, the president called him and said, if you attack me again publicly, I will <laughs> fire you. Um, so of course, they turned me down. But, but my point is obvious. If you start with the temple, 
And of course, I don't have to tell you the sad truth if you read the Bible. This is the ideal in the real temple that turned out that the priests were not above a little corruption themselves, that in fact people came in and didn't tell the truth about their clean hands and so on, which is why the prophet said finally God's going to reject this temple, it's going to destroy it because it's become, instead of a true temple, it's become a den of thieves. Instead of becoming a place of ethics, it's become a place where people sit and discuss the next crooked deal they're going to make and so on. But to come back to the point, if you start with a temple and you set an ideal of ethics and standards and community responsibility, and then you widen that to Jerusalem and make that a city of human dignity and of peace, that's what Yerushalayim means, city of peace. And if you expand it to a whole country, eventually the whole world. So the notion of homeland is not just that everybody's entitled to it, but it's a place where each community, each nation can build an ideal environment. Not a perfect environment, that's what we're working toward. But it can become a model, it can become a light unto the nations. Or again, as the Psalm calls Jerusalem, a city on a hill, a, a place which can be and should be, a place from which the whole world can derive moral and spiritual and religious guidance. So that was the Jewish dream. Now, of course, you, I don't have to tell you, the destruction, particularly the second destruction of the second temple, and the following exile meant that this whole Jewish dream was not just that it was put in on ice, the fact that it was, it was attacked and broken by this destruction, but it was put under a level of question mark. Now, the Jewish people did not give up this dream. That, again, is part of the greatness of our history. Like a true covenantal people, they said, maybe not in my lifetime, but I'm not going to give up this dream. I'm going to keep it alive, and I'm going to dream of going back. And so every day they prayed to be restored. Every day and every Shabbat, I've often told the story many times, every Shabbat they would say in the Birkat HaMazon, in the Thanksgiving after every meal, they would start with Shir HaMalot, Psalm 120, which was written originally when they came back from the first destruction, from the first Babylonian exile. And it said when God restored us, it was like a dream fulfilled. They had this incredible hope that someday, and that Shabbat was a little bit like Again, Shabbat was the time equivalent of the space I described before. The Jewish people, you want to make the whole world perfect? Start with one day. So for 24 hours, they made believe the world was perfect. Shabbat was a day nothing had to be done, nothing, not just that you were not allowed to work, nothing had to be done, the world was perfect. And for 24 hours, you made believe you're back in Israel. For 24 hours, you made believe there is no slavery. For 24 hours, you made believe that there is only family and friendship and community and meals together and celebration and joy. So as long as the Jewish people was in exile, our central teaching of redemption remained a kind of intellectual, a virtual world, not a real world. And so the Jews never gave up, and that is part of the secret. They never gave up, but they never carried it out. And here we have this unbelievable development of the 19th and 20th century, Zionism with the arrival of the modern period and its promise that humans could take power to liberate themselves, that science could cure and medicine could cure disease, that humans could increase technology and overcome poverty, that human beings could politically establish democracy. That was the tremendous promise of modernity. The Jewish people, or at least some part of it, and admittedly a small part of it, grasped that the ancient Jewish dream, if you will, I'm quoting, of course, Herzl, it need not be a dream. One could make it real. And so in this incredible way, a small group. But that small group began to return to the land of Israel. And after 150 years of effort, I mean, again, it's hard to grasp again. Israel was a ruin. It was poverty-stricken. It had many, many difficulties. It was largely unsettled in the 19th and 20th century. And Jews came back and began to build the land. And Jews who had not been farmers for 2,000 years learned how to be farmers again. And Jews who had to struggle to become workers and laborers, but they were willing to do whatever it took to rebuild this land. And that's the amazing development, that it took time, but it happened. And then, of course, in the 20th century, with the rise of persecution and Jews being driven out of Europe, a much larger number came to the land of Israel. And then, of course, after the 
a war. 1948, the declaration of the land and the, and the state and so on. Now again, it's an unbelievable because never before in history has a people been exiled for 2,000 years, able to come back. Talk about the Jewish vision of a perfect world and that we have the strength of life to renew. After destruction, we have the strength of vision and dream to make the desert bloom to be restored. I recall a story Moshe Sharet tells the second prime minister of the state of Israel, and he was the foreign minister at the beginning. Ben-Gurion sent him to China to hope to get the support of the Chinese. At that time, of course, Mao Zedong and communist China set out to get their support, particularly because the Third World was being organized by the Arabs and arguing with the Third World, come and support us against Israel. <coughs> so Sharet visited with Zhou Enlai, the premier and number two person in China, and explained to him the whole dream of Zionism going back to the land after 2,000 years, the incredible thing, the language of Hebrew, which was a dead language. It was a literary language. It was a language of prayer and of words, of, and of reading, but it wasn't a daily language. Is being renewed. I mean, incredible story, and he told it with great enthusiasm, and, and Joe and Lai looked at him and said, my God, do you expect me to support that? He said, what if the people that we drove off, we Hans, had driven off China and we killed them all off, we sent them away. What if they would come back now and say they want to move here? He said, I don't see how you expect me. He said, he said, I never heard of this. What do you mean? How is it possible to come back? So I guess on one level, you know, it's kind of unbelievable, maybe even a little shocking, but on a deeper level, it's an incredible triumph of human vision and spirit. To have kept a dream alive for 2,000 years, I mean, what happened to the Philistines when they lost their land? What happened to the Amalekites? What happened to the ancient Greeks? What happened to any of these people when they were driven off or suffered a crushing defeat, when the Assyrians transferred whole populations? The answer is they gave up and they disappeared. So it's an incredible statement of the basic claim of Jewish tradition, that human hope and human dream and a human vision of a future perfection is real, it's powerful, and it will transform the world. Don't give in to the status quo. I mean, the rebirth of Israel is the most incredible narrative, thousands of years, proving that dreams are more powerful than realities. It reminds you again of one of my favorite jokes of, the, of the Israel's restoration. The stories you know, in fact, I'm sure many of you are aware of the history. Perhaps you read Old Jerusalem or any of those books. The first war, after Israel declared its independence, it was invaded immediately by six Arab nations, which were determined to wipe out the, the Yishuv, the Jewish settlement state. And it was a very close fight. The truth is Jews were the heaviest percentage of casualties of any of Israel's wars were in the War of Independence. As you know, they had barely enough arms to fight a war. The British had kept them down. The British had prevented their getting organized and so on, helped, favored the Arabs, turned over arms to them. And in fact, to this day, if the Arabs agreed to a temporary truce at the height of the siege of Jerusalem, that temporary siege saved, saved Jerusalem because the, they were all but out of ammunition. And then during that ceasefire for the few days, they flew in planes from Czechoslovakia. They brought in ammunition, and that was the turning point. And of course, they won when the fighting resumed. Anyway, the story goes in this last day before the ceasefire, Jerusalem was very close to surrender because they were almost out of food, almost out of water, almost out of ammunition. The story goes is the last night, and Chaim, Chaim Yankel is called in by his commander. He's a member of the Palmach, the Jewish army. He says to him, look, Chaim, he said, um, as you know, we have a ceasefire in 15 hours, but rumor has it, we've heard clear reports, the Arabs are going to try one last push the last night. We've got to stop them. He said, well, I'm with you on this. He said, but here's the problem. He said, your particular sector, this gate, is vulnerable, but we're out of ammunition. You have to hold off the Arabs. We have the ammunition. He said, no ammunition. He what am I going to do? He says, look, here's a broom. Fake it. In the dark, it looks like a rifle. Stand there. Hope they won't come at you. If they come, you'll try to take them the best you can. He says, my God. He says, I'm sorry, we had no ammunition, no guns, you'll have to manage. See, Grace's his friends, they get at the gate there, they're waiting the whole night, he's sweating away, he says, God, it's 9 o'clock, it's 10 o'clock, God, please, they shouldn't come. Please, they shouldn't attack. 
12 o'clock, God, please, I should attack the other place. At least I have some guns. Not here. He's sweating, hoping, I can't wait. 5 o'clock in the morning, the ceasefire goes in effect. He's praying, nothing will happen. 3 o'clock in the morning, he thinks he's in the clear. At 3.15, he suddenly hears it. Footsteps. He says, oh, my God, this is it. Sure enough, footsteps are coming. He looks around, what should I do? They're coming. He sees a whole group on the other side. Well, he figures, look, we have to save Jerusalem. I'll go down. I'll, I'll fake it. Picks up his broom. He points and says, halt, halt, I'll shoot. They ignore him. They keep coming right at him. He says, halt, halt, I'll shoot. They're practically on top of me. He figures, look, they're going to kill me. Let me take one with me. He lifts the broom. He's about to clobber the head man on the other side. He's about to swing. He says, oh, my God, it's his brother Maish. He drops the thing. He says, Maish, is you crazy? Why didn't you answer my, my command, my challenge? Do you realize if I had a gun, I would have shot you dead? He looks at me and says, you can't hurt me. I'm a tank. <laughs> well, the amazing thing is that those tanks won the battle. Now, again, I understand the limits. If they hadn't gotten real checkpoints, those tanks wouldn't have saved the day. But the power of a dream, the power of a transformation, the fact that the Jews on Shabbat really sang Shir HaMalot, they really believed, felt like they were back in Israel, gave them that strength to go back to Israel, gave them that strength to get malaria, to suffer through all this struggle economically, physically, politically, and militarily to get that country. So it's a remarkable statement. And that, of course, is the great narrative. Contrary to President Obama, who meant very well, I'm sure, but well, that will bring me to his second, to his narrative. That's the true narrative, is, and that's the amazing testimony, both to human hope, to human dream, and to our teaching that the world can and will be transformed and perfected by human will, by human hope, by human dream. The second point of Israel, and why it is so powerful and why it's so meaningful, is what President Obama referred to, and of course, is the Holocaust. But again, it's not that our claim to Israel is based on Holocaust alone. I would say what Holocaust represents is a second element of Israel's incredible, I believe, moral and spiritual standing. What we saw in the Holocaust, I said last night, was the total assault of death upon life. Our teaching for 4,000 years is life, to choose life, that we're living in a world in which life will win out, and that each of us can play a role in the final triumph of life. That's our central teaching. And it's the most precious thing. It's in a struggle with death, and every person can choose every minute of every action of their life to be on the side of life, and they should make that choice. And every people can make that choice to be on the side of life or to be on the side of death, depending on how you choose and how you behave. What we saw in the Holocaust was that the response to the Jewish teaching of life was a kind of cancerous, pathological version of modern culture. The teaching, you can take power, you can make a perfect world, you can set up a new order, taken by Nazism and turned into a kind of a pathological, we will make the world perfect, but to do that, we have to first kill all the Jews. To do that, we have to establish a dictatorship. To do that, we have to create a new single society in which there's no room for outsiders. The inferior races must be eliminated. That pathological version of technology and of science and of modern culture made the Jews its primary enemy. Again, it's not my topic today. My guess is in part because the Jews represent the claim of God, the claim of limit, the claim that nothing human is absolute. The Jews, by being different, reject the notion that we all have to be the same and that the good society will be one which is homogenized and no room for any outsiders. For various reasons, they focused on the Jews and get rid of them. But this assault of death on life was not just mass murder. As I said last night, it was a systematic degradation of the value of life. It was a systematic destruction of Judaism as a religion because its teaching said that the salvation, the redemption of the world is not this way, but by partnership, by respect for human beings, by connecting to God, by connecting to fellow human beings, not by this kind of enforced uniform revolution. 
And so in that struggle between life and death, there was a systematic attempt not just to destroy the Jews, but to destroy the religion. I mean, I go through hundreds of, I gave you one example last night in reducing the cost of killing Jews as a way of stating their life is worthless. How about the fact that this roundups and the destruction was scheduled for holidays? As you may know, the Warsaw Ghetto Revolt erupted when? On the first night of Passover. Why? Why the first night of Passover? Because the Nazi had that systematic policy that you bring destruction on the Jews on their holidays because you want to turn their liberation holiday into a degradation and destruction holiday. So the Nazis' plan was just as when the Warsaw Ghetto was set up, it was set up on Yom Kippur, deliberately. The de deportations to Treblinka, the first mass murder of Jews of Warsaw was, was set up and started on Tisha B'Av. I mean, it was a kind of, a, as I say, it's a devil's theology, a deliberate reversal destruction of Jewish religion. That's why by the end of the Holocaust, it became an overwhelming need for the whole Jewish people to answer the question, is there anything left to our teaching of the value of life? Is there anything left to our belief that there is a God and there's justice in this world? Is there anything left with our idea that life can win over death? Here's the victory of death over life. Six million people wiped out and millions of others. So the whole Jewish people had to answer that question. And that accounts for why Israel was born in 1948. Not that's how we got to Israel or that's how we built the basis of Israel. That's how the timing came out. Because after the war, when Ben-Gurion faced the question, can we wait? There were a lot of people pressuring wait, including many American Jews. The Allies aren't ready to accept the state yet. Who knows? The generals, when, when Ben-Gurion decided to go ahead, he had a meeting with his generals. His generals said to him, if we declare independence, we'll be invaded, we will lose that war. We don't have enough arms, we don't have enough trained people to hold off all the Arab armies. His answer was, we can't wait. First of all, there's a quarter of a million survivors who want to come to the land of Israel and start a new life. The British won't let him in. His answer is, we can't wait, because frankly, he felt, this is so shattering an event, the Holocaust, it will destroy the morale of the Jewish people. We have to have a counter thrust of life, of creation, of independence, to restore our dignity. Otherwise, our whole people may collapse. So he overruled the generals. It's interesting, Rabbi Isaac Herzog, who became the first chief rabbi of the land of Israel, came from a traditional background. His colleagues jumped all over him when they had the meetings to decide to go ahead with the state. His colleagues said to him, how could you agree to support the, the, the proclamation of the state? It's obvious that this state will not be able to live up to halacha as it stands now. The state will have to do things on Shabbat. The state will have to do all kinds of things that right now the halacha cannot permit or not support. How could you support the state when you know the state is going to cost us violation of Jewish law? You know what his answer was? He said, I felt that if we don't have the recreation of the state now, that a whole credibility of our whole Torah, the whole credibility of our lifetime teaching, that there is a God, that there is a covenant, that there is hope for the future, that the life will is at stake here. It will be destroyed. I felt I can't wait anymore. We have to have a counter proof, a counter statement of the power of life. There's no choice. We have to go ahead. And we'll have to take whatever cost of course, the right answer was, we'll have to adapt the halakha properly, but that's another story. So here we come back to the same urgency. Why world Jewry? Up until 1939, the majority of world Jewry was not Zionist. The majority of the Orthodox said, you have to wait for the Messiah. The majority of the reform in America said it may endanger, it, 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 we don't need another state. They removed the prayers for Israel and restoration. We don't need a state. We're all citizens of our country, and this is a good country, and we don't need another state. The majority of the philanthropists of the world did not support Israel. They were afraid they'd lose their social position. They were afraid that people would say that somehow Jews are not loyal, do a loyalty. After the Holocaust, world Jewry understood we cannot wait. There is no alternative. This is the, the Jews should have had a place where they could have gone for asylum, for safety, for self-protection. They didn't have it. We have to declare the state. So the second most powerful statement of the state of Israel is it shows the Jewish people choosing again that we still believe 
in God, meaning in a world of purpose and meaning. We still believe that life will win out over death. We still believe that we have a calling to teach and to live this. And therefore, we can't wait. We have to create life. We have to restore the value of human life, the value of Jewish life. And so overwhelmingly, the Jewish people came to support the state of Israel and to work for it. And to me, again, why am I a pluralist? Well, in part because it wasn't the Orthodox who did this. It wasn't the secular who did this. It was a majority of Israel's population was secular. But they couldn't have done it without the Orthodox any more than the Orthodox could have done it by themselves. And worldwide, secular Jews, reformed Jews, liberal Jews of every stripe, conservative Jews, supported the state at least as much as the Orthodox Jews. So on the big question of the future of the Jewish people, on the big question of the credibility of our own religion, does it still have any? The Jewish people understood across all lines, this is what has to be done. This is what was accomplished. So Obama was right that this is part of the moral support of Israel, but it's not the narrative of Israel's establishment. It's the explanation of why we couldn't wait another 100 years, another 1,000 years to make it happen. And it is a remarkable statement. In these 50, 60 years, Israel restored the value of Jewish life, which is another way of saying restoring the value of human life. I mentioned last night that the Nazis had it down to half a penny a person to kill them and decided to save the half a penny by burning Jewish children alive. Israel is the reversal of those things. In the 1939, if you were Jew, you had less of a chance to get asylum in America. Jews suffered from discrimination. You had less of a chance to escape Europe if you were a Jew. After the Declaration of Israel, if you were a Jew, you had a better chance of being saved. As you probably know, there are thousands of Russian Jews who are not Jewish, who came out of Russia. Well, some of, many of them were married to Jews, admittedly, but many of them were not Jewish. What happened in the 80s and 90s when the Soviet Jewry movement finally won the right for Jews to emigrate? Emigrate to Israel was the particular causal factor. When after the Six-Day War, Soviet Jewry awoke and demanded its right to be Jewish, the most amazing thing is that word got out among the Russian population that if you're Jewish, you have a better chance to get out of this country. And so thousands of people passed for being Jewish in order to, in order to qualify for this privilege. This is the reversal of 2,000 years of pariah and outsider status, the reestablishment of the value of Jewish life. Ethiopian Jewry, in a continent where, as I said last night, people die for lack of a dollar's worth of food for lack of a half a penny's worth of mosquito netting a day, where the UN studies showed that millions of people die in Africa. Children die every year from diseases whose terminal point is diarrhea, dehydration, and death beyond malaria, and that those children could be kept alive by a little clean water and oral rehydration tablets that cost 25 cents a day. And the world doesn't raise that money, doesn't give them the tablets. And here, the Jewish people went in. They evacuated 40,000, 50,000 people, Ethiopian Jews. They flew them to Israel, gave them a new life. We've raised hundreds of millions of dollars. What a statement of the value of human life. And it's not just for Jews. In essence, our teaching is every community, every people has to understand what a valuable life is and to restore it. But that's the model. That's the light unto the nations. So that's the second most powerful statement of what Israel stands for, which brings me to the other two points I want to make about Israel's role in Israel's state. Now, to, to declare the state of Israel means the Jewish people understood it must take power and assert its own life and its own destiny. It means coming back into history. For those 2,000 years in exile, we did not have the final say in our own fate. We would depend on other powers, other people. They treated us as the most unlike pariahs. Christianity portrayed us in the most garish and horrible terms. Jews are well poisoners and child killers and the worst kinds of criminal behaviors and immoral behaviors. And Jews lived on the margin of society. Second-class citizens frequently mistreated often expelled victims of pogroms and so on. We made a decision that that period is over, and we are now back in history and taking responsibility for our own fate. In a sense, the Holocaust was the climax of our powerlessness. The whole Jewish people understood we can never be powerless again. We're living in a world where if you're powerless, 
they will kill you to the last person. Again, I want to say the Jewish lesson never was just a Jewish lesson. The whole world learned that lesson. It's no coincidence that since 1945, we've had worldwide liberation movements to throw off European colonialism and to establish national independence. The whole world learned this lesson. It doesn't matter even if the white man is a better person. The truth is many of the rulers that followed were worse than the white man. It doesn't matter what people said was, if you are a potential victim, if you're a potential inferior, if you're a potential subject to degradation, that you must have the power, the right to establish your own government, your own dignity, your own self-protection. And worldwide, that's what happened. The third world fought for rights. It's no accident since 1945, we've had civil rights movements in this country. It's no accident that we've had women's liberation in the last 50, 60 years. Now again, you say, women's liberation, who needs women's liberation? As you well know, Jews are good husbands. Why, do you need, why is it that all these leaders of women's liberation are, you know, Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan, all a bunch of Jews? What's going on around here? Blue Greenberg, I mean, what, who needs? I thought, I thought we had, I thought we had, and it's a well-known fact that Jewish husbands are good husbands. In fact, it's become a threat to Jewish survival because on the college campus, they did a survey a few years back that showed the average Non-Jewish undergraduate women said Jews are good husbands. They, they, don't, they don't beat their wives. They, they bring home the paycheck. They don't drink. So they had this image, Jewish husbands are good husbands. So why are all these Jewish women leaving the women's liberation movement? Well, of course, again, the answer is obvious. The answer is that's the lesson of the Holocaust, that you should not have to depend for your dignity on the goodwill even of nice guys. It doesn't matter. In the end, the key to dignity is the right to protect and assert one's own power as an equal, independent person. I learned this lesson from Eldridge Cleaver. Any of you remember Eldridge Cleaver? Before he was born again as a born-again Christian, Eldridge Cleaver was a black nationalist. In the 60s, I got an invitation one night to a program off campus near Columbia. I went to my amazement. I met this fellow, Eldridge Cleaver, I never met in my life. And he's making a presentation. What's his presentation? He starts by saying, I was raised to be a good nigger. Of course, the minute he said that, everybody looked at him, was shocked. I knew exactly what he meant, because I was raised to be a good Jewish boy. It wasn't mean a good nigger. It means you don't make trouble. You, I mean, in other words, you don't rock the boat. Sure, they don't treat you nicely. Sure, you're an outsider. But if you don't rock the boat, you don't make trouble. It's like, you know, the famous story of the two Jews are taken out to be shot by a firing squad. So they tie him up, and then they bring out the uh, blindfolds. They put it on the first guy. He says, he, he puts it on. They come to the second one. He says, I don't want it. They say, put on it. I don't want it. The first says, don't make trouble. Put on the, put on, <laughs> put on the blindfold. He said, I was raised, I was raised to be a good nigger. He said, you know, then I read about the Holocaust. And I said to myself, it's a bunch of lies. What do you mean don't be, make trouble, be a good nigger? You go along, so they'll persecute. But he said, we're living in a world where if you go along, they'll round you up, they'll wipe you out to the last person. I woke up and I said, there's only one answer here, black power. African-Americans, they called them blacks at that time, have the right to defend themselves. Nobody who's on the line who's in danger should have to depend on the goodwill of whitey or anybody else. That's what women's liberation is about. It's not depending on the goodwill of another. And let's face it, Franklin D. Roosevelt was a great president one of the greatest presidents of American history. But in the end, nice guy, but he had very little in his heart to look at or protect the Jews of Europe. For that matter, a lot of good Jews, good Jewish leaders, weren't prepared to stick their neck out or to make the changes necessary to save the Jews of Europe. So that's the point of Israel taking power. The Jews have the capacity to protect themselves. And as a result of that, we have reversed history. We have made Jewish life more precious. We have made it paradoxically where people understand that if you're Jewish, you have a better chance of getting asylum and getting escape. Now, there's a flip side to this, which is still what we're all struggling with today. The flip side is that when you're powerless, you're ethically perfect. Well, why not? We have no power. We can't do any damage. So Jews always had this image, you know, Gentiles. In fact, I should call them by their right name, Goyim. That is to say, they're not Jews. They are abuses. They have, they go hunting. They beat their wives, and they persecute Jews. But we're perfect because we never victimize. 
Jews can't even drink. Jews are incapable of beating their wives. It's kind of, Jews have a purity of victimhood untouched by guilt or by failure. Well, of course, that was very self-flattering. When you take power, you discover the real truth. The real truth is that everybody's capable of beating their wives. Everybody is capable of drinking or going hunting. The real issue is taking power ethically and responsibly. And that is the great transformation of Jewish history. To take power without giving up our values is a, a very different ballgame. When you take power, you take on guilt, frankly. If you have an army, we never had an army for 2,000 years, but if you have an army, no army can fight in any battle without sooner or later killing innocent civilians. Doesn't matter, even if you try hard. So what makes you a moral army? You have to give up the notion of purity and take responsibility. If you have an army, you can save millions of lives. Israel has prevented catastrophe and another Holocaust time and time again. And what makes you moral is you make a major effort to minimize civilian casualties. You do what Israel did in Janine, where it sent in soldiers into a very crowded, difficult situation, therefore did not use tanks and artillery to soften it up for fear they would kill civilians. And as a result, as we well know, some 22 Jewish soldiers were killed because they went in and they were able to trap them, able to use mines and so on, because they didn't have the armor power protecting them. Now again, bluntly, when you think in those terms, you have to understand the flip side means that if you do that often enough, you will lose the war and evil will win. So it's a juggling act. Israel has many times attacked or singled out for attacked Hamas leaders who are planning suicide bombings, who are carrying out terrorist activity. At the last minute, you cancel it because they're traveling with a convoy, because they're in the middle of a, of a school building, because whatever. And then, if you take that, that's what makes you moral, and you know what? And then sometimes it happens, and one of the Hamas leaders, they caught him in the car, it turned out in the car was wife and child, and people on the street who got injured or killed as well. So you have to understand you're giving up purity. What makes you moral is you minimize it, prepare to take your own losses. What makes Israel moral in the exercise of power has been that it has a free press which reports every abuse or every failure, that it has a court system that reviews, did not give a blank check to the army, that reviews every action and one holds people responsible if in the heat of battle they lose their cool and they do things wrong. What makes Israel moral is that it has political parties where one campaigns against the other and tries to minimize use of war, use of army. Now again, I have to say this truth about Israel is why I think for 50, 60 years, I think it's a moral model for the whole world, despite 60 years of war, of ter unrelenting terrorism, of boycott, of delegitimation, it has kept an amazingly high level of human responsibility, of ethical responsibility. I said last night that the invasion of Gaza, which clearly was they decided the only way they're going to stop this continuous firing of missiles, which makes life unlivable, even if they weren't killing that many people, when they went in, they understood they're going to have to pulverize a lot of homes and a lot of structures. They made major plans to minimize civilian casualties and civilian refugee flight. The amazing thing is Gaza, which is the most crowded place in the world, had a few thousand refugees and a very less than a thousand plus dead, most of whom were in fact fighters and terrorists. As compared to when the Pakistan army decided to fight the Taliban in the valley, in the Swat Valley in Pakistan. They went in all guns blazing. Tens of thousands of people died. Three million people fled their homes. So again, if you look at the publicity, the press, the coverage, particularly on the left, it's as if Israel has committed major crimes in Gaza. They're still demanding war crimes trials, when in fact the paradox is the opposite way. With tremendous self-control, they have done minimal things. I'm not saying none, did nothing imperfect, no mistakes or no bad judgments or no bad behavior. But by comparison with the world, it's an incredible accomplishment. And that is the ongoing challenge of Jewish history. One of the reasons why I'm convinced that Israel has to make room for a Palestinian state and, and evacuate a good part of the West Bank 
is because there's no other way to keep Israel with a Jewish majority, not having to keep the Palestinians down in a form that leads sooner or later to these kinds of episodes and these kind of destruction. It's a major challenge. But if it does so unwisely or cheaply or quickly, it paves the way for all-out assault, if not the risk of destruction itself. So that unfinished job of Jewish ethics is a major challenge. I think world Jewry has a major role to play, both sides getting support for Israel on the one hand and making sure that Israel does not lose its awareness of the danger of becoming too hardened on the other. And as I said last night, in my judgment, the liberal rabbinate has, like the left in general, has tended to slide into a kind of a mindless identification and criticism of Israeli behavior or excessive criticism. The Orthodox rabbin has tended to slip into mindless defense of the other side of it, including settlers when they're out of control. So we need a better job of correcting each other and helping Israel correct itself. Last point, and I'll finish with, with this point. In terms of the future, Israel represents another amazing accomplishment that is a responsibility and a future for all of us. When modernity started, the Jewish people faced for the first time in thousands of years full acceptance, which raised a tremendous challenge of assimilation. Much of Jewish difference began to slip into the idea they hate us, they're against us, they reject us, or they're inferior to us. With the breakdown of the ghetto walls, with the growing acceptance in this country, where Gentiles were full human beings, where they treated us with full respect and full dignity, many Jews began to say, well, who needs to be Jewish anymore? The Messiah is here. We have perfection, freedom. We don't have to bother being Jewish anymore. And still others just didn't want to accept the minority status. Now, in the response to modernity, there were three main responses in the Jewish people. The first was the Haredi, if you will, the orthodox or the right-wing orthodox response, which was this culture is so dynamic, we can't enter it. If we enter it, we'll be lost. So you have to stay out, you have to close your ears, you have to not get educated, you have to not change, you have to simply bluntly become like the Amish, step out of this society, be a private club somewhere, otherwise we'll be swept away. I don't believe this approach was very powerful, very influential. It made a contribution, I think, in helping Jews not totally assimilate. Having said that, I think it was a wrong judgment and proves to be a very vulnerable judgment. Despite the growth and strength in the last 20 years, I believe in the end Judaism is not meant to be an Amish religion and cannot survive as such. On the one hand, and on the other hand, the culture is so attractive that it penetrates. And even in the closed circles of Borough Park or B'nai Brak, the issue is unresolved. There's a great deal of penetration of culture and a great deal of slippage. Second serious option responding to assimilation was the liberal position and the modern orthodox position. We'll make some mix of the two, modernity and culture and tradition. We will make some balance. Again, orthodox differ from liberal, from reconstructionist and conservative. But basically, all these movements had the same idea. We can take some modification of both, put it together, and be both Jewish and modern at the same time. It happens to be my favorite choice, but it's not clear that it's successful. Not clear, not stable yet. The truth is, Reform worked best initially in those countries where after the reforms were made, there was still a great deal of segregation and barriers between Jews and non-Jews. With the opening up of America in the last 30, 40 years, tremendous openness, assimilation rates and intermarriage rates have gone through the roof. Same thing with conservative and non-Orthodox Reconstructionists. They worked best when there were kind of all kinds of hidden barriers, all kinds of protections, all kinds of special experiences. Now, with total environment, total acceptance, not clear that any of these has a stable, permanent future, or whether we're just buying time. It's a great challenge. Again, I don't want to sound pessimistic or given up. This is the challenge of creating Jewish culture. We'll talk about it, I guess, on Wednesday. The challenge of recreating a Jewish culture in this country a religion that is dynamic enough to handle the competition. But my point is, as the second option, it's up for grabs and far from proven that we have a stable, permanent form yet. The third option was Zionism. Zionism did not solve the religious problem. It did not solve the cultural problem. What it says that was, we can create a total Jewish environment in Israel. And we have a Jewish majority. We'll have Hebrew culture and Hebrew language. We will have the national holidays of the Jewish calendar. 
Here we can create a vital Jewish environment which can maintain distinctive Jewish existence in the real world. I must say this has been the most remarkable accomplishment of the past century. Hebrew is a vital culture, incredible outburst of literature, of poetry, of art, of music, incredible religious renewal. People aren't aware, you know, despite the Holocaust wiped out 80% of the rabbis, Talmud scholars, students of Talmud in the world. Now, and mainly thanks to Israel, there's been a lot in this country too, there are now more people studying Talmud full-time. There are more rabbinic scholars than ever before in Jewish history. Tremendous proliferation. More Jewish children, 80% of them, attend full-time Jewish study, live in the land of Israel, although Israel is only 50% or a little less than that, a world Jewish population. But a tremendous recreation. And what's more, my argument is it's not just good for Israel. It's good for American Jews. Many of you have heard of Birthright Israel. It's a program my son and I, were involved in very deeply from the beginning. The power of Birthright Israel was not just to support Israel politically, not just to identify with its dangers. It was to send people for 10 days to experience the living vitality of the state of Israel. And it's not just the religious wall, which is tremendously moving to them. It's Coca-Cola in Hebrew. It's Tel Aviv, nightlife. It's the vitality of a living Jewish people with such vitality, this is one of the paradoxes, that's why Haredim have flourished in Israel. The whole idea of separating off and we can make it, I think, was madness. But in Israel, it's working much better because in the Jewish environment, with support from the government, a lot of it, I think, unhealthy, they are able to flourish. So the fact is that Israel has given us a vital, flourishing Jewish society which offers the promise of a permanent Jewish people, whatever happens in diaspora, although I don't want to write off diaspora. If we do it right, we can help each other to create a flourishing total Jewish culture, but that has to be done in Israel as much as in America. So the unfinished task, I believe, is twofold. One is the existential threat to Israel. It is not yet legitimate. It's not yet politically safe. Now we have a nuclear Iran on the scene, a very dangerous and threatening development. We have a major responsibility to stand by, to give it strength, to make sure it has the political support of this country, a major challenge ahead of us. That's the existential physical side. The spiritual moral side is a common task, not only to nurture Israel, its culture, its education, its religious life, but together to take up again the challenge of creating a religious cultural life vital enough to maintain us distinctively participating in the total society, total world. Israel has that same challenge, bluntly, because right now it's sheltered by the Arab hostility. If, as I believe, someday we will have peace, it will have to meet the same challenge we do, to create a vital form of Jewish life that can maintain itself in an open environment. But to that task, they have this tremendous advantage of the total Jewish environment and culture, and I believe a total resource for world Jewry. So together, I think, we have this incredible moment in Jewish history. The risk of losing all, but we dare not give in or lose hope. If we are strong and if we renew ourselves as a people, there is the possibility of a breakthrough in which the physical and demographic renewal of the Jewish people in Israel will be matched by a spiritual religious revival that can offer us not only a future, but our classic role as light unto the nations. Thank you.